Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2133 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we begin a new series of extended messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week one of a 43-week series on the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. And those that are watching later on our recording, I just want to mention that all of our services are recorded and we post them onto our church website and also to our Facebook page. Um, so if you ever want to miss a Sunday, you want to watch one of the services, we are recording each of these services. So I do thank you for that. All right, finally done with James. Now we move on to John. And if you thought James was a long series, well, you're in for a treat now because the Gospel of John is going to be quite a long series, but it's such an intriguing book. And today all we're going to do is the introduction of God, John. The Gospel of John, and we want to look at who was this apostle named John. The good news, according to John. This message will look at who John is and why he is unique among all of the apostles. Of the 12 apostles, John was the one, it says, the disciple that Jesus loved. He was the closest one to Jesus from a friendship standpoint. As Peter, James, and John are the inner three, but of those three, John is the closest one to Christ. Now, let me ask you, have you ever started reading a novel, and you turn to the last page and read the last page first to see how it turns out? Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to turn to John chapter 21, and our scripture today is verses 24 and 25. So join me in your Bibles, and it's page 1689 in the Pew Bibles, as I read the scripture for today. These are just two powerful verses as we begin this influential but extended series of messages. John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testified to these things and who wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now John, of all the apostles, as Paula mentioned, was the only one that we know of that lived and died of natural causes. And he died a very old person. He knew the story of Christ from the beginning to the end. He's the only one who saw all that fruition. And as a bold, blustery young man, probably in his late teens or early 20s, the idea of tramping around in the wilderness of Judea after John the baptizer appealed to him a great deal. As Paula mentioned, they were referred to, he and his brother were referred to the sons of thunder. And you just wonder why Christ gave them that term, the sons of thunder. They must have been quite bombastic or explosive. He left a thriving fisher, fishing business to the, his enterprise to his brother James, who later joined him. And he abandoned his privileges that he had of that business ownership to follow 
John the baptizer around in the wilderness before the Messiah was announced. Instead of fishing and having a good life, he wandered the wilderness with John the Baptist and ate wild locusts and wild honey. He had a chance to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, which he is looking forward to. He helped that forerunner of the Messiah baptize thousands of Jews who were turning to, to the Messiah in repentance, although he had not been announced yet. He supported this strange Elijah-like figure as he called down judgment on the Jews of that day, especially the corrupt leaders. Then finally, one day, John saw the long-awaited anointed one. He looked nothing like John had imagined, but the declaration of his wilderness mentor, John the Baptist, was unequivocal. This is the one. Now, John and another one of the baptizer's disciples that worked with John the Baptist decided to get a closer look. They followed Jesus home to hear what he had to say about himself and about Israel. And before the dawn of the next day, they knew that they had found the Messiah. Now, John spent the years that he spent with Jesus flew by like a flash of lightning, yet they remained vividly clear in his mind for more than 70 years from that point. Say he was 20, and he lived at least till 90. For those 70 years, those images of Christ were vivid in his mind. During the short time that he was with Jesus, he saw the man that he thought would be the super David, the conqueror of Israel, the savior of Israel. But then he saw him stripped and beaten mercifully and hung on the cross like a common thug. He saw the sky darken and the light of the world faded into death. But then he saw the hope of the resurrection and assumed that the more glorious body of Jesus Christ after the resurrection, he saw that. And he realized that he was standing in it with awe in the presence of God. The presence that filled a squabbling group of self-promoting disciples and transformed them into the very body of Christ, the bones and the muscles. The disciples became the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ, who was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Then as the blood of his martyred brothers and sisters yielded new believers, John nurtured them. Along with Paul and Barnabas, Silas, Apollos, Luke, Timothy, and Titus, and a host of other missionaries who zealously expanded the church westward from Jerusalem, John stayed in that area and anchored that church to its very foundation. Critics bashed but John defended. The imposters subverted, but John exposed them. False prophets misled, but John refuted their heretical message. He condensed his teaching into three small letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that passed around the churches of Asia Minor in AD 65. And what most of us don't understand is although the Gospel of John appears as the fourth book in the New Testament and his letters appear late in the New Testament, he actually wrote those letters quite a while before he wrote the Gospel of John. Having outlived his martyred peers, John was exiled by the, by the Emperor Domitian to a nearly barren, barren island called Patmos. There he saw the world's future all the way to the recreation of that new Eden where the world becomes the Eden now. And finally, heaven and earth combine 
as it was meant to be from the beginning. And he preserved everything that he heard and witnessed in a book that we call the Revelation. And he sent this book to the seven churches that he wrote to in Asia Minor that were under his care now that he was one of the last ones living from that original group. And after Domitian's death in AD 96, John rested in the care of the church of Ephesus. And they in turn enjoyed this grandfatherly, gentle shepherd as he taught and he nurtured them in their faith. Now, you might have heard of the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three wrote a version of the Gospel, and they had many of the similar stories. And they had been staples for the early church. They told the story of Jesus from different perspectives, yet they chose to include many of the same events. If you'll see the Synoptic Gospels, you'll see the same stories in all three. They were primarily taken from Jesus' ministry when he was in Galilee. But decades later, the elder John was in Ephesus. The church was no longer a budding movement. It was an established community of thought, a system of worship of God. But the danger came less in the form of physical attacks or religious opposition by that time, and it was more of a philosophical corruption and theological compromise. And that's what John was writing toward in his gospel. Furthermore, the biography of Jesus lacked a much-needed cosmic dimension of it. So in the final years of John's life, after he had witnessed the most significant period of history, that first hundred years after Christ was born, a time where it was more important and more impactful than any time in history, And as he was nearing his death, he was growing old. He was 90 or approaching 90. He knew he didn't have much longer to live. And he knew now was the time to share his version of the gospel. And his theme was that you may believe in his gospel. And we'll get into that over the subsequent months of how many times he talks about believe. The gospel of John is a masterpiece in storytelling. It was a once, it's once, at once both charming in its simplicity and yet challenging in its depth. It's a rare work of fun, that fun-loving children can grasp, but even deep-thinking philosophers can share equally. John's God-breathed account of, God, of Christ's earthly ministry uses a very elementary Greek. Now, most of us don't know much about Greek, But John was written as if it was a child's primer. That's how simplistic that he wrote in the Greek of the day. And it is often the very first book for those who study Greek in college or seminaries that they translate the book of John from Greek to English because it uses the most simplistic form of Greek, that Greek called koinia, and that's how they learn to translate. Yet philosophers and theologians spend lifetimes trying to comprehend those profound truths that are found in John's gospel. John's gospel presents God as the Father more tenderly than any other book in the Bible. It boldly and unambiguously established a dual nature of Jesus Christ, fully God and yet fully human, perfectly united in that one person of Jesus Christ. It reveals the ministry of the Holy Spirit unlike any other gospel. And moreover, John's narrative 
provides a broad range of practical lessons and guide us along our life as a believer. Several passages come to our rescue when we're leading someone to faith in Christ. John is one of the first books that we would turn to. But it also is there to comfort and console us when we've lost loved ones that are precious to us. From the Gospel of John, we learn about an increasing estrangement from the world and how we're constantly battling the world to stand for the truth. We learn that but we also learn the deepening intimacy that we have with the Almighty. We begin to appreciate the priority the Lord places on the unity of the family of God, like we have here at Putnam, where we reach out and help each other on an almost continual basis. Despite its intricacy and complexity, the fourth gospel is usually the first book of the Bible that readers and students and new believers turn to. Even the great Martin Luther, who was the father of the Reformation, marveled over the dual nature of John's writing. And he wrote, Never in my life have I read a book written in simpler words than this, and yet the words are inexpressible. Now John's approach to his writing of the gospel was deliberate. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he carefully crafted each sentence to unveil the fascinating mysteries of heaven in a simple language. And he painstakingly chose the facts that would relate and which ones he just could leave out. In his own words in John chapter 21, verse 25, as I read in the opening passage, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for all the books that would be written. That's how much John knew about the life of Jesus Christ. Now, rather than pen a document that was be four times the size of the Old Testament, he chose the less is more route in writing his gospel. Instead of overwhelming us with volumes of information and detail, he strategically chose the stories to relate to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose for the gospel is written in John chapter 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That was his purpose for writing this gospel. But you might ask, why do we have four gospels of Jesus when one could have just done the job? Or we might ask, why not have 12 or 14 gospel stories? Well, in reality, we don't have four Gospels. We have one Gospel, one good news story. But it was written from four different vantage points. We have a biography from four different writers who had their own unique personalities and their own unique backgrounds. It would like if we wrote the stories of something that happened today and four of us wrote it out, each one would be based on our background and based on our own viewpoints. And that's what happened with the Gospels. We have one biography, but from four different writers providing a unique perspective. Now, if we were to document the life of Jesus only in pictures, we could choose a couple different options. For example, I know we stream everything on our phones now, but I brought this for visual effects. This is a a video camera that we use for years. If we recorded Jesus Christ's life in video format on tape, It would be a very long tape. It would last over 33 years in order to watch the entire thing. So this would be one form 
of recording Jesus' life, but that's not what the gospel writers did. They, wouldn't, they wanted to capture moments. And if you look through, I'm sure all of us have photo albums that we look through of life of our past. And if we look through those photo albums, we just see snapshots of different times and different seasons in our lives. And that's what the four Gospels were written about. We have one photo album here that was Paula growing up. And it has a few of our baby pictures of our babies when they were young, but some of them are from Paula's teen years, when she was young, before I ever met her. So this would be one snapshot of a story. And then we would go on to when we started our family, young pictures of Buddy in here when he was about two, standing in front of a redwood tree. We had some where we took a trip to see Paula's parents out in California. So we were very young parents, and our children were very young. These are snapshots of that season of life. And then we would progress further to other seasons of life and see a snapshot of our family during that time. These have some of the pictures of my brother getting married at our house um, after his wife died. So these are one season of our life. And we would even go back, could go back to the very beginning when Paul and I met in our college years and look at the pictures of when we were in college in those years right when we got married shortly after college. So these are different perspectives of life that each of Paula in my life, but this is what the gospel writers did. They took snapshots of their perspective of life of Jesus Christ. There were three that were part of the synoptic gospels. Those were Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now Matthew was a Jewish disciple of Jesus Christ who was once a tax collector for the Roman government. So he was a despised person, and yet he was a Jew. But moved by the Spirit of God, he wrote a biography of Jesus from a Hebrew point of view, emphasizing the regal rights of Jesus as the Messiah, the legitimate king of Israel. Matthew traces Christ's genealogy from Abraham through King David. And that was his snapshots of, of Jesus' lineage. The Jewish book of Matthew was written to Jews, fellow Jews that were under that covenant that God established with the nation of Israel. And Matthew's primary theme was the Messiah has come. And we move on to Mark, the second book in the New Testament. Now Mark was probably the very earliest account of the Gospels. He probably wrote his in AD 50. So his was the first account of the Gospel. He was not one of the 12 disciples though, but he was a, mother, um, a son of one who followed Jesus closely, Mary. And it tells us in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. And he was also a close associate with Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. Now it is understood that Mark, most of Mark's material came directly from Peter. So he was more acting as a scribe for Peter when he wrote that gospel. So it was Peter's recollection that Mark was writing down in the gospel of Mark. He presents Christ's ministry from a practical, action-oriented action point of view in a narrative frequently punctuated by the phrase, and immediate. Now, if you remember, Peter was sort of the one that flew off the cuff all the time and made glorious promises. So the book of Mark was written more from a bombastic point of view like that. The style would have appeared to those can-do Romans of the first century who respected deep thinkers, but they looked to men of action for leadership. And Peter was certainly a man of action. So often, he acted before he thought, as many of us do. 
Mark's gospel shows us that Jesus is a no-nonsense God-man who came from heaven to complete a task. And that task was written in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark's primary theme was the Son of God came to seek, serve, and to save. As I mentioned, most of his material was probably gleaned from the disciple Peter, who was one of those inner three. And then Luke, the Gospel of Luke. He was a physician, a doctor, a medical doctor, born and reared in Macedonia. He was a Gentile. He wasn't even a Jew. He wasn't part of that chosen race of Israel. And he wrote neither from, for the spiritually privileged Jews of the day nor the politically privileged Romans, but he wrote to the common Greek person, most of whom had no power, no wealth, and no hope for the future. Luke's gospel highlights the humanity of Jesus, favoring the title of the Son of Man and providing details about his humble birth, his ordinary boyhood, his compassion for the poor and the sick, and his global scope of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke's genealogy chases Jesus clear back to Adam all the way through to Jesus Christ. Adam was the father of all humanity, not just the nation of Israel. And this is what Luke was emphasizing. His primary theme was the Son of Man came to redeem all of humanity, both the Jews and the Gentiles, coming together as one under God's new creation. And then John certainly knew the other Gospels and probably actually taught from the other Gospels in those early centuries. But deciding by the guidance of the Holy Spirit that the biography of Jesus still was lacking something that needed to be be completed, the Christian world knew, knew Jesus as the King of the Jews. He, they knew him as Jesus as a servant, and they knew Jesus as the Son of Man, but there remained a need to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. John wrote in his gospel so that we would know that the Son of God is man in human flesh. He took on the robe of flesh, and became human that we might know him as God in flesh. Completely human, but yes, no less God, when even in the beginning he spoke the very universe into existence. The same Jesus Christ that took on flesh spoke the universe into existence. We'll get into that next week. The Gospel of John provides no genealogy. Some of these things, once I got looking into John, sort of surprised me. He provided no genealogy. He illustrated the fact that the deity had no beginning. The Gospel of John has no childhood details, no retells or, or no parables. And perhaps to emphasize that Jesus has a transcend transcendent nature of God. The Gospel of John bypasses the temptation in the wilderness. He bypasses the transfiguration on the mountain. And he bypasses the commissioning of the disciples after the resurrection and his ascension from earth. Instead, John writes to the philosophical and theological perspective, placing great emphasis on the miracles of Jesus, which he called signs. For John, miracles were an indication of the supernatural happenings that went through Jesus Christ. Proof that many considered theoretical were actually tangibly real. 
The word had become flesh to give humanity every reason to believe and to leave us without any excuse or doubt. We cannot have excuses or doubt if we read through the gospel or the good news of John. John's primary theme was that the man we know as Jesus is none other than God on earth. So to recap the four gospels, Matthew says, this is the Messiah, the king, worship him. Mark says, this is the servant who served humanity, follow him. Luke said, this is the man among men who was without sin, emulate him. And John says, this is God in human flesh, believe in him. And the reason, one of the reasons he wrote the gospel of John was believers were starting to have a crisis of faith. As the newness of Christianity was wearing off, the churches were being established, they were having a crisis of faith. And John declares, in effect, I'm not merely writing to inform you. I'm not merely writing to entertain you. I'm writing to stir your hearts to believe. And the Greek word pisterio, translated believe, appears 98 times in the Gospel of John. Every chapter within John has that word listed in it, and sometimes multiple times per chapter. But what does it mean to believe? We are called, first and foremost, to believe in Jesus Christ as that Savior of the world, uniting Jew and Gentile into one. This was an intellectual and moral crisis that we were having of the day and presented to people in John's narrative so that they would believe. They would respond with what the Greek word is, pistis, means belief or complete trust in the Savior. And John lists many people who believe, but these are six examples in John. The first one is John the baptizer in John chapter 1, verse 33 and 34, where John said, John the baptizer said, I did not know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, this is the one whom you'll see the Spirit descend and rest on, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. And then Nathaniel, one of the disciples, Nathaniel, one of the 12, John wrote in chapter 1, verses 46 through 49, Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip answered. As they, as they approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How did you know that about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And then there was the disciple Peter, one of those inner three. John wrote in chapter 6, verse 66 through 69. At this point, many of the disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. And then there was dear Martha of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' family, the family members. In John chapter 11, verse 24 through 27, yes, Martha said, 
He will rise when everyone else rises at that last day. And he was talking about her brother Lazarus who had died. Then Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Oh, yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one whom has come into the world from God. You see this repeating theme of belief here? And then there was Thomas. Oh, poor doubting Thomas. He gets such a bad rap. But you know, all of us are doubters like Thomas. In John chapter 20, verse 27 through 29, he wrote, "Then Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in my side, in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Then the author of the Gospel, John, also wrote in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, what his basic premise was for the gospel. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and, the one, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So what are the signs and discourses that come along with this gospel, this good news of John's? John's narrative is remarkable in several aspects, not the least of which is its structure. It's structured like no other book in the Bible. We fail to see this because we don't understand it from the original language at times. But the first verse of chapter 13 makes a dramatic shift within the gospel. It's a story of Christ's earthly ministry was contained in the first 12 chapters. And the final eight chapters read very differently than the first 12. Chapters 1 through 12 describe an extensive public ministry, very public ministry, and the message that Jesus Christ had. Whereas chapters 13 through 21 takes us behind those closed doors to an intimate relationship between Christ and his disciples. Chapter 1 through 12 carry us through over three years of Jesus' public ministry. Chapters 13 through 20 spans only four days. It was followed with chapter 21, which is the epilogue, which was within the 40 days after Christ's resurrection. The first section highlights the miracles of Jesus, while the second section records the discourses between the 12. So just to summarize those breakouts of the book of John, chapters 1 through 12, three-plus years of Christ's public ministry, his public proclamation, which contained many spectacular miracles. And in chapters 13 through 21, three or four days, it was a private instruction, very private. And it was an intimate discourse between John, or between Christ and his 12 disciples. Now, John did not structure his gospel account haphazardly. The narrative unfolds much like our Christian life itself. The initial intriguing introduction to the Savior leads quickly to a call to believe and follow Jesus Christ. 
Understanding will come in time. We may not know it all when we're saved. We don't know all there is to know about the, the Bible. We don't know all there is to know about an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That grows over time, and so does the gospel. Understanding will come in time. This is not an intellectual decision, but a moral one that we make when we accept Christ as our Savior. Then as we witness his power, we hear his teaching, we experience his life, his presence, our understanding deepens, and our confidence in him grows. And gradually we become mature disciples, though never beyond the need for God's grace when we fail. In other words, John's account of Jesus' life and ministry on earth is no mere biography. It's just not a recording of his life. It gets much deeper than that. The Gospel of John is an invitation to believe in the Son of God, to become his disciples, to deepen our understanding, to identify with his mission, and to grow in maturity. And then lastly, to join Jesus Christ in tending for the sheep caring for the sheep, bringing the sheep into the fold, and then caring for them. And that's what the Gospel of John presents to us. As we take note of just one verse before we close, John chapter 1, verse 29, this is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And the next day, John, the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The good news, according to John, is split up into five different sections. Next week will be part one, section one, and it will be the prologue, and it will be Christ, the eternal word. Then part two, which will last several weeks, is the presentation of the word. Part three will be the authentication of the word. Part four will be the confirmation of the word. And part five will be vindication of the word. And those five parts will go through in this series of messages on the Gospel of John. I think it will be an exciting series, an interesting series, a series where we, by the time we conclude this series, will have an intimate relationship with Christ that we never had before in our lives. No matter how mature or how old you are in your faith or physical age, it will bring us into that intimate relationship. So next week will be Christ, the Eternal Word. And the other four will have numerous messages under them. But I encourage you for next week to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And those are the verses that we'll cover next week. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this word, your word. Thank you for this overview of John today and who John is. It's an intriguing story, Father. Thank you for, for allowing John to pen this good news of your ministry on earth. Thank you for his Focus on Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, fully God, yet fully human. Help us as we go through this series to learn more about you, to understand you more fully, that our walk with you might be more intimate, Father. Be with our congregation here. Help us to outreach to our community, to touch those lives that are in need of Jesus as their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly. 
Love unconditionally. Listen intentionally. Learn continuously. Lend to others generously. Lead with integrity. And leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.